Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. And today I'm joined by the Playhouse's artistic director, Adam Penford. How are you doing, Adam? I'm very good. Thanks, Craig. Adam Penford here today to talk to us about this year's pantomime, Dick Whittington, which you are both the writer and director of. That's correct. I'm doing both. <laughs> yes. Can you hear the fear in my voice? <laughs> so I suppose the first question is, were you not busy enough? It's <laughs> a very good question. Uh, no, but um, seriously, so you you wrote your first pantomime for the Playhouse, perhaps your first pantomime ever during the pandemic uh, as a means of financial necessity. Is that right? Yeah, that's completely right. So in, in COVID year, in 2020, we were meant to be doing Beauty and the Beast uh, and it was all designed and cast. It was a full scale production and it soon became clear with the pandemic that we couldn't do that version. It was too expensive for one and also wasn't COVID safe. So very last minute, we realised we needed a brand new pantomime and we needed to do it on the cheap. Um, So uh, it was decided that I would write a 90 minute uh, version of Cinderella, which would be with a much smaller cast and no children. We used to have a youth chorus, no children in it, um, using existing sets, props and costumes. So I did that in 2020. Um, annoyingly, we never got to perform that for the public because if you remember back in the timeline of COVID, um, we were on the roadmap at that point and we were get, went into the tier system and Nottingham was placed in tier three, which meant that we couldn't open. So we got as far as the dress rehearsal, which we uh, captured digitally with an audience of 40 Nottingham Playhouse staff members, which was legally compliant. They were allowed into the building. <laughs> um, and they worked very hard to shout boo and it's behind you and clap and cheer. Uh, and then we released it digitally, but Nottingham never did move from tier three. And so we never did open it to the public. Um, but that was 2020. And then uh, this year we're doing Dick Whittington. Um, And because of, again, because of the finances, um, because of COVID, the Playhouse is actually relatively well in terms of financial health. But we, you know, we have a bit of a gap from the two years we weren't selling tickets to the normal uh, extent that we do. Uh, The board basically said, would you write this year's pantomime? And would you waive the royalty (laughs) that a writer would ordinarily get paid, which is a lump sum? because it's a percentage of ticket sales and on pantomime that can add up quite quickly um, and waive the royalty, which obviously I wouldn't take um, ethically. Um, and that will just save us a little bit of a, a bit of money and help sort of balance the budget for the year. So that is why I am writing it. And then for the first time uh, properly, I'm directing it as well. And that's mainly because I've been at the Playhouse as artistic director for five years and I'm yet to direct the pantomime proper. And um, it felt about time. It's the biggest production of the year. And so when the necessity becomes apparent in 2020 that you uh, are going to have to write pantomime have you written a pantomime before? (laughs) No. Have you written anything before? No. No. (laughs) So like what... um, what did you think when you were like <laughs> well you were flicking through old copies of mother goose you're like i could do better than this <laughs> yes basically that um i'm from nottingham originally and my parents brought me to watch the nottingham playhouse pantomime every single year from like the age of five or something and my parents don't come from an artistic background and in for quite a long time that was the only theater that i saw as a child 
uh, later on I started to see a bit more of a wider variety. So I sort of, I feel like panto is kind of in my artistic blood and specifically the Nottingham Playhouse pantomime, which we've been doing for like over 30 years now, making it in-house. So I just felt like I really understood it. And within my career, I've directed a lot of comedy, you know, um, sort of uh, One Man, Two Governors, for example. I worked on that for five years, which is Commedia dell'arte. That's the sort of, you know, the, the origins of Panto. So, yeah, I feel like it's a genre that I'm familiar with and the Playhouse brand in particular I knew. Um, and, of course, it is, it is formulaic mm. to a certain degree. You know, the, the characters are archetypes. The plot is pretty set. You can... The, the whole thing about it is honouring the traditions. Mm -hmm. So some of the lines are written for you. And actually, if you didn't include them, the audience would, would really miss them. So, And then I suppose the idea within that is to then bring your own stamp to it and make sure that it does feel like it's got something to say in 2022 to an audience in Nottingham specifically. Mm -hmm. But you're working within quite tight parameters. So uh, to go back to your question, I was originally quite scared about it, but as I sat down to do it, I realised I knew more about it than I'd, I'd, I'd realised. Yeah. And how did you sit down to do it? Like, What was the process? What <laughs> because because it was mid-pandemic and we, we there was so much happening. I'm thinking back to it, it's quite traumatising, you know. But uh, we were learning what furlough was at the Playhouse. A lot of the, about 90% of the staff at that point were furloughed. So there was only 10% of the, the, the staff, the, the skeleton team, who was sort of trying to keep the operation going. And we were um, putting in for the cultural recovery fund to try and shore up our finances. And we were dealing with COVID actively, COVID measures and what that meant. So it was really busy. So I, I actually wrote it starting at 11 p.m. on a Friday night and finishing at about 4 a.m. I wrote at one. And then the following weekend, I did the same thing, uh, wrote for six or seven hours through mm -hmm. the night. Um, and it was only 90 minutes long, remember, mm -hmm. so it was quite relatively short and it was only six actors. Um, and I didn't have to think about the young chorus, the, the young people. And that was draft one. But this year, different. Full, full panto. Yeah. So does, does it does it look the same? Is it still like an I still wrote it in or, the middle yeah, of yeah, the night. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah I am, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, because... Because it's the only time available to you or just because it, that sort of feels right? No, it's the, it, the, I mean, it sounds like tiny violin moment, doesn't it? But the truth of being an artistic director is quite time consuming. Mm. So that day job, I already work a lot of hours a week. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've just finished directing another show. Mm. Um so when I'm in rehearsals, I step away from the day job, but that means the inbox soon fills. The dripping tap and the overflowing sink uh, of my inbox. Is that a good analogy? It's quite fun, isn't it? Yeah, I, mean, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, so the I don't think I would choose to write. I'm not a kind of burning the midnight oil in order to sweat out my pantomime script. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just necessity. Um, but actually, I do find... I suppose weirdly, I do find it means I'm focused. Yeah. You know, the inbox stops filling at midnight on a Friday night. Mine so, doesn't. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I'll get emails from you. <laughs> yeah, you probably can't get emails from me, exactly. <laughs> because that's when I'm working. You're quite right. Listener, we're not joking. <laughs> no, we're really not. So, tell, so you talked about the Nottingham Playhouse pantomime and it being a specific thing. So what are the specific hallmarks of a Nottingham Playhouse pantomime? What were you absolutely sure to include yeah, it's a really good question. I, like I said, we've been doing it for over 30 years. We do have a sort of brand. I think it's about it being quite family friendly. 
So what we've never done is done the kind of adult panto, which is full of a lot of heavy innuendo, um, which, you know, this children still go to those pantos. It's just the kind of innuendo flies over their head mostly mm -hmm. and the adults roar with laughter. And I see, I sit and watch in those pantos sometimes and see the, the children looking really confused and excluded. So that's never been what we do. And I, and I'm, only too happy to continue writing in that vein that feels right to me and um, partly because we have two audiences like a uh, 50 percent of our audience for panto we have 800 eight-year-olds nine-year-olds come with you know coach loads literally of schools <laughs> offloading at 10 30 a.m on a I don't know, Thursday the 19th of December. <laughs> um, you know and the play has to the, the production has to work for that audience but then it also has to work for a much more mixed audience on a Friday or Saturday night, Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, let's say, who are there to party. So you're trying to you're trying to um, find something that works for both. You don't want to exclude the children, but nor do you want to make it too babyish. That there needs to be stuff in there for the adults. So that's part of it, and and part of that has always been as a, a clarity of storytelling, taking the story seriously, actually. That. Um, and really investing in it and not sending it up too much. Which again, when I go and watch other pantomimes, sometimes I think they just whiz through the story. The mm -hmm. plot isn't important. They're trying to get to the next big song or the next dance number or the next kind of comic set piece. And they just fly through the, the script and the, and the story. And I think that's a shame, you know, because if you get it right, the audience, no matter what age, will be carried away on the with the beautiful story you know they've these these they're always based on fairy tales and they have great narratives with underlying messages something to say so it's about drawing that out as well so um and i suppose the only thing to add about a play as panto is because we make it in-house it's the you know we still have our making departments we have a set builders a props makers a, a paint shop um and a, a wardrobe department we have all those skills, those craftspeople in-house. So every year it's brand new. And the commercial model for Panto is Peter Pan this year is in Sunderland. Next year, that same production of Peter Pan will transfer down to Plymouth, mm -hmm. you know, um, whereas we make it for the audience in Nottingham and it's fresh every year. So it needs to feel lived, I suppose, or alive. And as a director, what... Does a panto rehearsal room feel different to say? So you've just directed the clothes they stood up in, which is a play, as you would expect a play a play to be. And we spoke in our previous conversation about what your process when approaching such a project might be. Does it differ for the panto, or are you using? Is it? Does it feel the same? Yeah. What are the the differences? In some ways, it's easier, and in some ways, it's more difficult. I think it's difficult because the timeline is just a bit shorter. So ordinarily, a play at the Playhouse would have a four week rehearsal process and then the fifth week would be technical rehearsals and dress rehearsal uh, for panto you only have three weeks rehearsal before you go into tech week even though the length of a panto is often a little longer maybe than mm -hmm. your average play and your cast size is well we have eight adult actors and then we have two teams of six young people so that's a lot of uh, material to get through learning songs choreographing dancers um, setting any set pieces um, which maybe we'll talk about a bit more in a second. But the, the, but the, one of the things that's really quick and easy is the blocking of it, for example. Mm. It slightly stages itself if you understand the conventions. Mm -hmm. You know, So I try not to make it so that everyone just stands in a, a straight line 
facing the front the whole time. That would be very dull. But actually, there's you're not really there's no fourth wall. Mm. So you're not having to sort of invent reasons for actors to move as you might yeah. ordinarily in a naturalistic production mm -hmm. where you're sort of going, I need to change the stage picture. Uh, one, because it's boring and two, because I'm trying to tell a certain narrative mm -hmm. moment or thematic moment. But we need to find a reason why that person crosses the stage, sits down on a chair, whatever. In Panto, you don't have to worry about that. It can feel a little more mechanical mm -hmm. and you're not trying to hide mm -hmm. the mechanics. Um, so I find in terms of staging it, it's really quick and easy, which I think is why many commercial pantos literally rehearse sometimes in as little week. as, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be three days or a week yeah. or something because you literally go stand there, stand there, stand there. Mm -hmm. Also, as I said, often they're recreating what they did the previous year mm -hmm. in a different city. So, so it does differ a bit. The young people is an interesting challenge because at the beginning of the process, they're in school. Mm -hmm. So you're rehearsing two or three evenings a week on top of normal rehearsals. And then that intensifies as you get nearer the production period. So, and then I suppose the other thing to throw in is, uh, is that I mentioned set pieces. Yeah. Uh, this year, for example, we're doing a, a UV ultraviolet uh, underwater scene, which I haven't seen for years. But I really associate with being a child and watching and watching pantomimes. And yeah, watching me pantomimes. Too, yeah. yeah, you know. Um, and I guess what happened is every panto had it, so it became a bit. Yeah. old hat so people stop mm -hmm. doing it but now of course there's a whole generation of children who've probably never seen that um so i was really keen to put that in and, and dick whittington is useful because there is a scene with a shipwreck um so it allows you to do an underwater scene there's not much technical time to get that right so we're going to have to get as far ahead technically with that in the rehearsal room mm -hmm. as possible so talking puppets and stuff like that um Again, that will take a certain wedge of time and that incorporates all the young people plus crew. Uh, the backstage team have to be involved with that because you don't have enough hands to do it otherwise. So I've never done that before. I don't know how that's going to go. I'm quite excited and a little nervous. And just in terms of you have written the panto, mm. so under normal circumstances, say you were directing the panto and Fraser, our esteemed digital producer who's sitting in the room with us, sorry, I've broken the illusion, um, <laughs> sitting in the room with us while we record this conversation, Fraser's written the panto, but you're directing it. You would say to Fraser, yeah, I'm not sure about this bit. Uh, I'm not sure that joke works. Or perhaps actually we could do with a different pop song here. Um, is there someone saying that to you or are you trusting your whole your instincts entirely? <laughs> I guess we're yet to find out. Um, <laughs> Fraser's pulling a face at the idea that he's writing next year's panto. <laughs> Can if you want. <laughs> um, well, I hope... So there's... A, I suppose it's about collaborators as well. So, for example, the musical director, John Morton, has been our musical director for over 20 years. He understands his function within the whole really well and understands the rest of it, to be honest, <laughs> uh, as a vehicle. So I've been working a lot with him and he's been feeding in and I'm no doubt he'll continue to do so mm -hmm. when it's on its feet. Likewise, uh, Donna Berlin, who is a choreographer who hasn't worked at the Playhouse before, but has done a lot of pantomimes elsewhere. Um, she understands the genre, so she'll feed in. Um, and it's also about the actors. So John Elkington, who has been our dame, I think, for 24 years now. You know, I sent him a very early draft of the script and he fed back on that. Mm -hmm. And that's been really useful. And one of the things, John, he said this when we did that COVID version of uh, Cinderella as well. He said, don't write it too tightly. Leave enough space, I guess, for, you know, for the company to discover stuff in rehearsal, mm -hmm. but also 
to discover stuff in front of an audience. Yeah. Because if you write it too tightly, then there won't be room or air for that to, to happen. And, and because I know John quite well, I've worked with him before um, in different productions other than Panto. So I know he'll do that. And we have a trust and a working relationship. So I'm really hoping... I'm really hoping that people will just be honest and mm. say if they think a joke isn't funny or could be funnier or, you know, likewise, any other element of the production, because that's the danger, isn't it? If you're both, if you're trying to wear two hats or yeah. more. Um, but speaking of wearing two hats and just to widen our conversation slightly and think about the numerous other hats you have to wear. So we alluded earlier to your heavy workload as an artistic director. Uh, and I just wonder... I think people would be interested to know how do you you manage the shift between being a creative entity who makes creative work for the building and the other stuff, the artistic direction of the building, which is, you know, I just spent a lot of time in meetings, talking to people, sending emails, making decisions. How do you manage the balance and indeed the shift between those two things? Not always successfully is probably the honest answer. I guess the truth is when you're in the midst of it, you don't feel a shift. But for example, can you give the same dedication and time to prepping a production now that you would have been able to do when you were a freelancer? No, the answer is no. So how do you make sure you end up in the rehearsal room feeling at least some level that you're similarly comfortable? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, how do I do that? I guess I... Well, I, I know some other artistic directors, for example, that they take a whole week off. They just block it out in their diary. Mm -hmm. So they just block a whole week off prior to starting rehearsal and they will not allow anything to come into that. I'm yet to find the art of doing that because I endeavour to do it. And then there's a meeting that is so essential <laughs> that it sort of creeps in and then, you know, suddenly you've opened the door. You just I just do it by doing extra hours. It's the right. only way I can mm. do it. And maybe having to, like, focus your time a bit more. Um, in some ways, it's a little liberating, mm. you know. Maybe prior to becoming an artistic director, when I was a freelance director al alone, I probably maybe over-prepped mm -hmm. sometimes because I, I, I was able to do that. And now I maybe have to think a bit more on my feet and trust that I'll, if I've surrounded myself with the right people, probably, that I can just respond to something in the moment and still deliver deliver something which is half decent i suppose i mean it, it's interesting whether that model how effective the model is mm. you know yeah. would the quality of the theater be better if an artistic director was one person mm. uh, i.e not making the art yeah uh, maybe so but then i guess you'd gain something by that uh, that a different model but i suppose what you might lose is a sense of the artistic leader building a relationship with everyone in the organization and the audience mm -hmm. and that deepening and strengthening over time and about the literal space. You know, what a privilege. Prior to coming to the Playhouse, I've never made so many productions for one single auditorium and stage. I feel like I have a really good knowledge of our facility, mm -hmm. what it's capable of, what it isn't. Daft stuff like, you know, the sight lines, yeah. the acoustic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, things like that. Working with actors who don't know our space that well or maybe are slightly less experienced to go, actually, you need to look up because the back of our circle is really steep compared to other venues. And if, if the audience out there are going to get your eye line 
then you're really going to have to lift your head up higher than you think or play wider or mm. lift your voice or whatever it might be, you know. So so I guess, you know, there are, so there are some positives to it as well. But I don't know if I've quite found the balance between the two. <laughs> <laughs> Do you enjoy running a building? Yeah. Yeah. Does it sound like I don't? No, 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 absolutely doesn't. I just wondered. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. no, I really do. I really, really do. I mean, of course, there are days where it just feels a bit tiring or a mm. bit overwhelming or you get bogged down in the elements that are of less interest to you. Maybe at that point in time are of less interest to you. But um, I really do because it, having been freelance for so long, it feels like you're part of a family. And that family is both the Playhouse team it's the freelancers that we mm -hmm. work with, either as a one-off or on a regular basis. And it's the, the audience, the community here in Nottingham. Like, so there's a joy in that. And, you know, it's a joy to be able to give opportunity to, to phone a playwright up and say the thing that we, I don't know, we did a seed commission for an early idea. We're actually going to turn that into, convert that into a full commission. And mm -hmm. we hope that, that your first play will be produced on our main stage or in the studio theatre or... You know, um, so that's quite nice. And be able to um, to curate an artistic program is very satisfying. Um, and I feel like that feels like quite a privilege because you learn from it because you don't always get it right. But to have the opportunity to get it wrong and then analyze why it didn't go the way you planned, that's, that I just feel like a, a, an honor, if I'm honest. Before you took the job as artistic director of the Playhouse, yeah. Was there a, an element of the work that you thought, ah, oh, I really am not going to be good at that, I'm not going to enjoy that bit of the job, that now you find actually you are quite good at and you do really like? Mm, good question. Thanks. <laughs> um, I'd never had to do stuff like write business plans, mm -hmm. feed into business plans before, and I just felt like I'd find them a little dull maybe, and probably more than finding them dull, I'd probably fear that I wouldn't be good at them or have the knowledge or expertise or background. But um, I've actually discovered that I find them quite a useful exercise in trying to put your um, ideas down on paper mm -hmm. and articulate it clearly and concisely to someone who's coming at it afresh, particularly when what you're trying to articulate is art, which isn't always easy to, to put down on paper. So to talk about what we're doing, why are we doing it? Who are we doing it for? How are we going to do it? Like, I actually quite enjoy that. And I suspect that if I ever, I don't know what I'll do after running the Playhouse, but if I, even if I don't go on to sort of work for an organization again, maybe I go freelance, I probably, I'm not saying I will write a business plan in order to articulate my creative ideas, but I think it certainly adjusted the way I think about them. And Let's just have one final question on this before we uh, can wrap up our conversation. I remember you saying once, I think it may have been in a private conversation or it may have been in a small conversation with a group of emerging directors that before you became an artistic director, you never read reviews of your own work. Mm. And now, because you run the building and you have to be aware of what people are saying because the shows have got to be sold, you do. Mm. So... I just want to know how you deal with that and whether you find the critical response to the stuff you make useful. Useful as a maker of work, not as a person that runs a theatre. So yes, that's spot on. I didn't used to read them when I was a freelancer and now I feel like I absolutely should. Uh, do I find the critical response useful? Um, yes, yes, sometimes. Because, I mean, partly you have to remember that it's so subjective. 
So one, it's subjective. Two, you don't know whether a critic's or a reviewer's uh, tastes or politics align with your own. So you have to take everything with a massive pinch of salt for that reason, I think. Um, also, some of them have an agenda. They're there to clickbait or to sell papers, um, particularly certain reviewers and certain publications. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it helps that I, I'm quite good at reading reviews in general now of other people's work, mm -hmm. I mean, outside of the Playhouse. So you start to learn. You, so you'll read a review and then I'll go and watch the show and I will mm. be like, I don't agree with that critic. No, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'll be For like, example, I think we can both think of a critic who I'm convinced at least does not like the theatre. <laughs> yeah, I can think of more than one. Actually. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So that's quite useful. Then, then you know, you can go. Then, then you don't take it quite so personally because you go, well, I watched that show and it was brilliant, and they've given it a one star. That makes no sense. Of course, it works the other way as mm. well. Um, so that helps be able to take you with a pinch of salt. But I also think sometimes it is useful, but. That, what, the thing I've always struggled with with reviews is you get to the press night. That is when you are really tired. You're mm. always tired. It's just it's been a long process. There's something about the um, adrenaline of the arc of that process. And you wake up the, the day after press night and you feel quite um, raw. <laughs> you know, even if it's if it got a full standing ovation and you mm. sort of go, I feel like this is a hit and that it's good. Um, you feel raw from it. And it's the worst time to be reading, <laughs> reading a response to the work. So what I tend to do, but I have to read it there and then because that's when marketing department are trying to react to the critical response. But I will return to it. Like when I've had some time away, when I feel a bit more recovered, I will return and think about what was written and it's sometimes at that point that it becomes more useful where you sort of go that was a point well made like i, I can see that excellent well thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us um i would like to finish with what was the uh, traditional conclusion to the amplify podcast as it begun during the lockdown uh, because this is my last amplify podcast uh you were one of the first conversations and you will be the last that i host um although i'm sure it will continue long into the future with someone much more loquacious and articulate than i but the question is if you can indulge me what was the last work of art that you encountered that absolutely blew your mind? Okay, well, first of all, before I answer it, I'm going to say we're sad to see you go. Um, Craig has been uh, at the helm of Amplify for three years now and has done amazing work. Um, I won't go through and embarrass you by highlighting all of that work, um, but it's been amazing. Um, and, but are we allowed to say where you're going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's fine. Go on, you, you say yeah. I mean, I've, I've signed the contract now, so what are they going to do? Uh, no, uh, I, uh, I'm leaving the Playhouse to become the literary manager at the Donmar in London. Yeah. Which is an amazing job and perfect next step in your mm. career, I think. Um, so that's really exciting. Mm. And, um, and also, we're excited to see who's going to be the new artistic mm. development producer at the at Amplify, you know, because every time someone new comes in, they bring a different burst of energy and in, 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 in a different direction based on their own skills and experience. So that's really exciting. I know what the actual answer to this is, but I'm... No, no, you must. <laughs> it's got to be the one. <laughs> okay. It's the biggest name drop probably ever on the Amplify podcast. Last weekend, I was at Sir Ian McKellen's house. <laughs> is that what you thought? Did he know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I was at a party. Long I worked to bore you with why I was there. Anyway, it was a party. Um, 
and I and I looked at his. He's got lots of artwork. Um, I hope there were no thieves listening to this podcast. Um, and there was a little painting, and I said, "Ian, is that a Lowry? That looks like a Lowry." And he said, "Come upstairs." That's a terrible Ian McKellen impression. Um, so we went upstairs to this living room area, and there were eight other Lowrys on his wall, original Lowrys. Some were charcoal drawings, some were little small pencil sketches, and some were hefty paintings. And there was one, of course, I, the, the most expensive one was the one that I was drawn to. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> um, it was a beautiful Lowry. And what was so interesting about it is it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't one of his factory scenes. It was actually set on a, a, at the seaside at the beach. And there was a harbour wall and some kind of seaside buildings. I'm sure they have a name, but vertical buildings in the background. And I, I would guess it was something like a bank holiday. It felt like a people, a bank holiday scene. And, and Ian said, look at it. It's like a stage. All the um, people that he's drawn are like actors. And then across the front is the sand, which is almost like the kind of front of the stage, the apron. And then he's put these buildings in, which feel like it frames the picture as a proscenium arch. And he said, I always think when I look at Lowry that he was like a kind of theatre director. And I, I looked at it and I so understood what he meant. And it was really beautiful. So that is my very name droppy last piece of art I saw that blew my mind. It's a brilliant answer. Um, and of course, there are works by Ellis Lowry that aren't in Ian McKellen's house. You can see them in public galleries all <laughs> over the country. Um, Adam Pemford, thank you so much for joining us today on the Amplify podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Craig.